Welcome to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Time for a regular segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin, NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. This week's senior reporter, Anne-Marie Timmons, is back. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You're coming in remotely from another part of the country today. Uh, You were over at a conference for the National Press Foundation, right? I was. I was in D.C. for most of this week, um, kind of learning how to cover the older residents of our state. Um, Elderly is a no-no word, Um, but really older these days, you know, seniors is also apparently not the best word. It's really 50 and over, Mm -hmm. um, which surprised me. I am over 50, so I guess I'm in this group. Um, And so we just looked at uh, this age group, even up to the 70s, is increasingly part of the workforce um, because we're living longer or healthier. Um, There's more jobs you can do that are not physical, um, physically demanding. So we looked at that. We looked at um, just their, you know, tech, like are they getting left out if they're not technology savvy or they don't live where there's broadband? And a big thing I want to explore is the, this older population, either are they coming back to work because they have to, because of financial means, housing has gone up, inflation, or are, did they have to leave the workforce before they were ready, you know, to care for, you know, adult, a parent, or to care for a grandchild um, or health reasons of their own. So just trying to parse into that workforce a little bit and understand it. So it's, it was really it's very confusing. It's like I, I've spoken to Rich Lavers, who's deputy commissioner at the Employment Security Department here in the state, and he's like, I don't know. Like there were a lot of these people that left because of COVID, because the jobs disappeared. I mean, there's a chance they'll want to come back. There's a chance they'll have to come back, especially with inflation being so extreme. But we don't know what the 50 and up workforce is going to look like in another year. Right, right. And our if you look at our demographics. We are growing as a state. We're one of the few in the country, but we're not going to grow as fast enough as for the baby boomer population once it starts retiring. So what happens? Like, that's a big gap. You can't replace that number of people quickly. Um, So that'll be interesting to look at. And yeah, just as we go forward, we're not going to get out of this soon. So I'm really excited to learn more about that. But you know, 50 is so, 50 to 65, it can be so many different things for so many people, um, depending on your access to healthcare, your living conditions, who you're caring for. So I think there's lots of stories there to pursue. The yeah, nature of healthcare is going to be a huge shift. We saw that through, especially through COVID, which was kind of the kick in the pants to uh, uh, telehealth and mm-hmm. uh, different means of that happening. Working through the university, there's something called Project Echo, where it's, mm-hmm. uh, which is a nationwide program that that is kind of integrates the training as well as the beginning to get providers to actually enter that space. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, place for innovation when it comes to how this is going to happen going forward. It's so true. Um, and as long as we do, if we have a good map that shows where we are, where our gaps in broadband are, like the accuracy of those maps is not a, a guaranteed thing. That's challenging. But if we can close those gaps, so many more people will be able to take advantage of telehealth. Um, but we also are going to see, I think, will we be able to keep the workforce up for you know, community and home-based care? There's lots of people who don't need to go to the nursing home yet, but they might go earlier than they need to because they don't have another choice where you know, if they had help with bathing or cooking or care, just taking care of themselves at home uh, once in a while, once a day, a couple of times a week, they could stay home. It's cheaper. you know. 
maybe safer we've learned during COVID, um, but we need that workforce there. And the, you know, the, the wages of that workforce, you know, aren't a big draw. Like those people who continue to do it is a passion because it is not a money-making operation for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's not going to magically turn around to be that in the not too distant future, especially as less and less um, younger people are paying into the health insurance marketplace. That's going to really hurt the amount of funds that are in the ecosystem. I know. And I don't think anyone has an answer. We started to see some candidates running for office um, be asked about this and it just is not an answer really. You know, I heard the governor say at a town hall meeting uh, over the weekend, you know, just if you even double the money, that's not going to be enough. Like I'd have to suss that out to see if that's quite true. I don't know. I'm not saying it isn't, um, but more money would help. I think that's what we're hearing. Um, just the Medicaid reimbursement is not very high. And then recruiting people into that line of work. I mean, that's a certain kind of big hearted person who can do that kind of work. It can be lonely. Like we said, it's underpaid. It's challenging. But without it, I mean, do we really want to send people into nursing homes prematurely just because they need help cooking or showering or some, but they're medically otherwise okay? Especially with shipping infrastructure and internet infrastructure being as good as this nowadays. Like my uh, my grandmother passed away, God, it was the end of March. Yeah, mm-hmm. But she was able to stay at home because she had internet and we could call her. We could mm-hmm. make sure everything was okay on a regular basis. We didn't have to worry about um, her heading to the stores. Like she could have a little flip phone with her if something went wrong. We wouldn't be afraid of something happening. And just to see a doctor that way, uh, my great aunt just passed away a few months ago at 103 wow. and she was home. Um, she was living with someone who could help with just some basic things, but didn't need medical care, you know, just died at home. And she was able to stay in touch with her doctor um, for smaller things if she needed them through her um, internet. If she had to order food, like from the grocery store, she could do that and it would be delivered because she wasn't driving, although she thought she should be driving. Um, So it was just, what if that hadn't been in place? Like she did not need to go into a nursing home, even at 103. Um, So I think we can count both of them fortunate to be able to die where they wanted to because they did have some kind of support. Was there a large variance from different parts of the country when it came to this? In terms of home care? Yeah, or just in general through your through your conference that you're attending. Like, is are reporters looking at kind of – are there completely different angles on this population that maybe New Hampshire doesn't necessarily see at this point? It was interesting. Um, there were people there from sort of um, just regular news publications and then like Fortune Magazine and Washington Post, and they're looking very much – you know, nationwide at big statistics that can show trends that we can't because we have too few numbers here. But interestingly, um, there was someone from Puerto Rico, a TV reporter, and there's a big focus on highlighting um, older people who are in the arts still, um, that social kind of piece, that engagement that's so important. And then we saw someone from Manufacturing Week, and they were looking at you know, can manufacturing lines do something to adjust, like ergonomics to make it possible for those people to stay on the line longer? Can they offer flexible schedules so they aren't working a full day? They don't want to come back full time, maybe, but they want partial day. Can they job share? So that was her focus. Um, and what we heard again and again, which is true, I think, you know, this doesn't just help the older worker. This right. could very well help all of your workers. So it's an investment that 
is not really for one population, but it would allow one population maybe to stay on, on the force longer. So that was just really interesting. It just their economy, she was from Cleveland, their economy is very manufacturing. So that, but we have those too. So I think right. that would be really interesting to look at. Yeah, that, that's fine. I just I was on, I'm a filthy millennial. I was on TikTok the other day. And we, we there there was a guy talking about the wear on you um, uh, emotionally or financially, physically, depending on the kind of industry you go into. And if you can make manufacturing not that, like something worthwhile, especially as the, the, um, the income you can make from these industries rise mm -hmm. over time. If you're able to make it like that, I can make a solid career like you used to be able to make 50 years ago in the manufacturing industry. That'll really encourage a lot of people to maybe stay local in their communities and have a solid job that could be multi-generational. So true. Um, there's a company in Milford, it's called Hitch Hitchner, um, a manufacturing plant. And they do a couple things. They found that they would bring people in from outside the state then they wouldn't stay. So they really started trying to more recruit here, but bring education into the office. Like they created work with the college and created a, a kind of a micro degree that spoke to the kind of work they were doing. And the other thing they did is have a program where you can rotate through each department throughout for a year you're moving through. So you're getting this cross training. Um, and so the ability to offer education to people who maybe hadn't had it um, allows them to stay in the workforce. That also applies to older people who need to be reskilled, new, learn new jobs. Because manufacturing today is very um, technical. Like it's 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 science and it's computers and it's technology. So maybe you've been in this field for a long time, but you didn't have to do it that way. Um, the other thing we saw is um, secret age discrimination. Um, it's apparently not illegal to ask someone how old they are when they apply for a job. Um, but the companies are not always that direct. They can do a number of things. Of course, ask where, what year you graduated, but they're also able to more and more advertise positions online as we have seen, but target it so that just so you can target a Facebook ad and say, I want it to go to this age group and they can target it so that older people don't see those ads ever. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a way of doing age discrimination we hadn't thought about. Um, you know, this job is physical. Can you do that or not? Those are other things. You know, sometimes it is physical and it, they aren't a right fit um, or they don't have a credential, but not always. So what happens, though, is we can't fill these jobs with younger workers. Um, do we does that shoot them in the foot at some point that they are not making room for older workers? And one thing the studies have shown is, you know, older workers have soft skills that some of our other people don't. I mean, that's huge for customer service. You just think about the difference between you call a company and you get someone who's listening to you and can communicate versus not. So those are huge skills. There's mentoring that can be done older workers to younger. Younger workers can also mentor older people in technology. So that cross-generational piece is it's just an engagement for both for both age groups, I think. So we'll see, like, you know. Why not look to more people to fill these jobs? We certainly have so many and just to be more creative about how they do it. So that's going to be really interesting. I, I think there's groups working on this in the, in the state, AARP certainly. Um, there's some, I'm going to look at um, 
sort of livable cities in, in the state, livable parts of the state and how they're thinking about transportation, but also sidewalks and social engagement. And I know they're thinking about this. So it's a whole, like I'm trying to develop this new beat and this was a great way to start doing it because we are a old state. That's great. We're, great. we're big, we're significantly old state. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, interested to follow those stories for sure. NewHampshireBulletin.com. We're speaking to Amory Timmons, who's a senior reporter over there. Let's actually talk about your uh, your article you did manage to get out this week while you were yes. at, at this conference uh, titled "Hospital Beds Are Full, But Not Without COVID nineteen Patient Not With COVID nineteen Patients." And it, it's fascinating to read some of this because it didn't click with me how many of, especially you're just you brought up the specialties that have moved into the hospitals that really didn't exist previously. So many people used to go to Boston for. Right, right. I know that surprised me when I first looked into the story because you can go on the COVID dashboard for the state, DHHS. I think it's if you did COVID dashboard and you'd find it and you can see how many hospital beds are available at any given time. Um, and it had been, you know, just 10 percent um, or less in some parts of the, the state, depending on the county. And so my thought was. First, well, I know they're not COVID patients, so is this delayed care? That's what we hear all the time. Are these people who wouldn't be this sick had they been able to get into the hospital or their doctor's office during the pandemic and delaying that has made them more sick? But that really isn't what I heard. I mean, that may be going on, but it's way too soon, they said, to know if that's 10% of the, these patients or more. Really, it's... Um, a big part of it, some of it's workforce, but not a lot, but this Elliott hospital system has added so many specialties. And those are people who used to go to Boston or elsewhere for the specialty care. And so now they're coming here. I mean, it's cancer, it's neurology, it's, um, you know, NICU, like very young babies born so sick and need the specialized care. And they're more and more bringing even their primary services under one roof so that it's more convenient for people. And then once you enter that system, you're going to be that system. You're going to be in that system now if you need to go to the hospital. So the numbers have just gone up so, so much. And so that was sort of a more encouraging reason for that story than I had anticipated. Um, certainly, there's also an increase in behavioral health. We've seen that the patients uh, coming through and ERs especially, but we are uh, we are still even at this point we're far better than we were during the height of COVID when patients were lined up in emergency room hallways, you know, um, waiting for a bed to open or people were being taken out of state. So we're we're much better, but it's uh, it's a picture into healthcare I hadn't really appreciated until I looked into this. In the long term, it'll be very interesting to see what that means for the financial back end of these hospitals with, with having all this happen. I mean, specifically here in Concord Hospital with uh, Concord Orthopedics expanding and partnering with their expanded surgical center right on the property. They're already basically on the property. They're across yeah. the street, but now they're on the property with this new center. And uh, I mean, there's so much money that can be made by bringing all this in-house instead of having all these third-party small uh, groups that are maybe in completely isolated areas from these main uh, healthcare institutions. Right, you just are now. You're going across the street for that care. That's exactly right. And that specialty care we know is brings in much more money um, than sort of day to day care. I think what's interesting is the focus on that care. That kind of care is growing. But try to get an appointment right now for your annual physical. 
or a colonoscopy or a lot of these standard screenings to get a new get a new provider. People are waiting a long, long time for that primary care. So at what point, you know, I'll be watching is that where delayed care now comes in? If you can't get those initial screenings, because um, those are struggling. There's just no, no one has openings. There's not enough primary care providers. And so why? I think that's going to, that's a question I want to look into. Just, is it New Hampshire? Is it people not going into that field? Um, I don't know. Yeah, anecdotally to me, it seems like people don't want to go on that field. It all comes down to money to me, like a filthy capitalist in my head, just, just screaming is like something is wrong with the ecosystem that really made people want to go into this field. Mm-hmm. I mean, people don't, you're not going to make a uh, half a million dollar salary every year by being just a, a rural doctor. You're, you're going to make a lot more by going into one of these specialties. You want to be a neurologist or something. It's so true. I mean, we, we've seen this with the birthing centers. So, you know, we have fewer and fewer hospitals delivering babies, but we do have some of these birthing centers, which is more like a midwife experience. Um, and their malpractice insurance during COVID you know, tripled in some cases from in the $20,000 up to the high $60,000. And you, there's not a, no number of patients you can see to make up that difference. So the state is going to try to help give some grants to help with that increase, hoping it's temporary. But yeah, you have school loans, you have that kind of malpractice insurance, right? You're not, it's a, it's a hard field. If you just went down at your paper and did the numbers, like, when do you make any money? At what point do you pay off the loans and that insurance and, and make a go of it? I think it's hard. Has Is this is this also a little bit of a, the downside to the Obamacare expansion with the Affordable Care Act requiring health insurance to to cover these 100%? I mean, this does this disincentivize the payers and uh, providers to some extent? I don't know enough about that, um, right? Because you go and you know, your insurance is not going to pay the the price that the provider is requesting. It pays more than Medicaid, but it doesn't necessarily pay their full ask. So I'm not sure about that. Um, that's a, the insurance market. I've avoided it for a while because it's so complicated. It is. Um, but I know it's time. I have to look into it. So I think that's a good question. Like, how does that interplay? And and then, you know, you want people on insurance because they are getting the preventative care. But how do you if there are um, repercussions of that in other ways, what's going on there? So I, I think that's a good question. Is it looking good for the hospitals right now with their uh, COVID-19 numbers? Like, is it, they really kind of feeling some of that pressure come down finally? Like the daily numbers I'm seeing are like 110 to 120 people in the hospital with COVID. Mm-hmm. But because of COVID, it's less than 20, it seems like. Right. People in there with active COVID getting kind of the antivirals, it's, it's 20, 19, nine, sometimes it's quite low. Um, and the rest of them are people who are in and had a, a co-occurring kind of condition. And between the, you know, re- the COVID lasting, you're not infectious, but you still have symptoms. And then their other condition, often they're just, they still continue to need care. So that is a, about a hundred. Um, what I don't fully understand is if it's their underlying condition that has like, if not for COVID, would they be out or is, would they still be in? It's just worse because of COVID. That's so hard patient, patient and these numbers, you know, it's changing every day. So I don't have a good picture of that, but yeah, the numbers are way down. They're staying less often. They're not staying 21, 25 days. They're not on ventilators like they used to be. 
So just the stress of that, you know, and just that's a highly infectious disease. And so it added another whole stress to the hospital, you know, donning and doffing PPE was very complicated in the fear of cross contaminating. So I think all of that has been you know, welcomed certainly by our hospitals. Senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons of the New Hampshire Bulletin, thanks for joining me. Thank you. See you in a few weeks. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. They join the show every week on Fridays in the 6 a.m. hour. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll be right back after this.